Whether we like it or not, politics is in everything. The sooner we accept this, the sooner we are able to access the tools and resources to solve problems. And the first tool, as we know, is voting. There's no way around it. Voting is the first problem-solving tool in the United States. Simple, point blank, period. In September, the country was collectively disturbed by the news of one of the United States capital cities, Jackson, Mississippi, didn't have water, didn't have clean water. We saw images of brown water, contaminated water, and just people not able to bathe, not able to shower, not able to brush their teeth with water. It was horrifying and many were shocked. But those who closely studied the country's crumbling infrastructure weren't shocked. Those who have been studying climate change and the environment weren't shocked. Those who understand how race and racism intersect with infrastructure investment and the environment and environmental justice weren't shocked. The country since about, uh, let's call it 19 Reagan, <laughs> 1980, has been emphasizing small government. Well, small government means lack of infrastructure investment. We've also been overtaken by people who denied the science of climate change. And so when we have crumbling infrastructure and unpredictable weather events, we get things like the Jackson water crisis. But when it comes to water, clean water and water distribution, Jackson is in the list of many American cities, Flint, Toledo, Dixmore, Illinois, Baltimore, and so on when it comes to water distribution and clean water access issues. So this is an American problem. And in the words of Jim Lowen, Mississippi is America. It's an exaggeration, but it's America. Or in the words of Nina Simone, Mississippi, God damn. This water crisis in Jackson and the country's water crises are complex but it's one whose answers all point back to government and politics. The Mississippi state government and legislator is unique, first in class, in neglecting and plundering its black citizens. There's, there's not anyone even close, but especially Jackson, which is 82% black. But here's the thing, all politics is local and water distribution is hyper-local. So Jackson's locally elected leaders, mayor and city council, have plenty to be called out for in this case. As I begin to think about how to approach this episode and to talk about this crisis, through my network of friends in, in Jackson, I was pointed to political leaders and both former and current political leaders. And I think we will talk to them at some point, but I wanted to step back and just get a lay of the land first and felt that those people were a little too close and a little too biased. So I wanted to get an informed and outside and sort of analytical objective view of what's going on first. Fortunately, one of our guests this season, Dr. Tammy Greer, Dr. Greer again is in the political science department at Clark Atlanta, she and I were talking about it and she said, I have the person for you. 
someone who's been studying water and Jackson, Mississippi's water crisis or water events for some time. Enter Jamie Beasley, who's this week's guest. And she's been studying the politics of water globally and specifically in Jackson with an analytical and political lens for some time. She's an instructor at Clark Atlanta, and she's also working on her dissertation in water distribution, clean water access, and the environment is a part of that study, both globally. She's been to Morocco and to Ghana looking at this issue, but she's been acutely aware and focused on Jackson for some time. You'll hear her and me talk through this issue and you will realize that she knows her stuff. You'll also hear that this won't be resolved without federal, state, and a local political solution. Yes, we're going to come back to the voting and the politics of this first. So if you're in Georgia, understand that either Senator Warnock or Senator Walker, God forbid, will weigh in on funding for Jackson. How much, when, and how it should be spent. All of that will start at the federal level. Also for Mississippians, black folks and progressives, Yes, you have the most restrictive voting process in the country, but you gotta show up at the polls in the midterms and every single election after this. Local, state, whatever, the governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, and Tate Reeves has been, uh, has held all of those positions and has uniquely been a jerk about providing Jackson with what it needs. But understand, you got to show up and vote. And yes, you have to show up for your municipal elections, your city council and your mayor. It all matters. Anyway, I want to thank you all for engaging with us and thank you for listening to us. And I hope you enjoy this episode of the Parlay in All Blue. Jamie Beasley, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I Listen, I am excited to have you. And I'm going to thank Dr. Greer, Dr. Tammy Greer, who was on our show maybe two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. And she came on to talk about the midterms in general. And I had asked her at that time to you know, if she had any opinions on Jackson Water and what have you, we never got to it. But in a separate conversation, she said, you know, about Jackson and about water, I have the perfect person, somebody that's been working on this long before the crisis or what have you. So I have to thank her for that. And I have to thank you in front of my audience. And this is this happens so much. And this is why I love doing the show is that I think I'm interested in something and I think I know something about it. And now I just want to talk more about it. You kind of helped me (laughs) pointing me in some other directions and saying, hey, as it relates to Jackson in this water, it's much bigger than you think. And it's much more complex. So I want to thank you first on that. So anyway, glad to have you. Let's start with water. And I have water in air quotes because it's a big global and complex issue. And let's start with sort of how you how you became interested in 
water, water access, clean water or wet it, all the things around water. How did you become interested in that? So first I was interested in food and like food insecurity. Just as a young person, like in elementary school, I just remember like one day I saw somebody that like couldn't eat at lunch and I'm like, why is this person not eating? They're like, oh, I don't have money on my account. I'm like, well, they're hungry. Like, why can they not, you know, get food? Like one plus one is two, you know? So I kind of like moved through that um, elementary school, middle school, high school, just like this thing about food and like, I guess, educating myself as much as possible about like what it means to be food insecure. And all of that changed when I got to my master's program. So wait, let me back up. I have bachelor's in African and African diaspora studies and health promotions. I know very long from Kennesaw State. And then um, I moved from Kennesaw State to my master's program at CAU at Parker Lane University in um, public administration. So one of the components of our program is we have to do an exit paper. The exit paper is based on an internship that we had in either a nonprofit organization or a government agency. So I did my internship with the Joseph and Evelyn Lowry Institute, um, which is on CAU's campus. So I helped them um, do the research. I love Cheryl Lowry. She's the sweetest lady. I helped the org do research on like what food students need in their dorms, kind of do research around what they can and can't cook, you know, in the dorms, and then do research to find donors that would donate food and supplies for the food pantry. So then we were in a meeting and Ms. Lowry said, oh, I want to do an urban garden. I'm like, cool, that's great. So we go to the site on Lowry Boulevard where she wants to do the urban garden. And I was like, well, if we're gardening, we need water. And so the water thing just kind of clicked because I'm like, where are you going to get all this water to water this garden in the middle of the city of Atlanta? Right. So finished that project up. I helped them get the food pantry up and running, found some donors and then did a big presentation, you know, at the end. But then I started working on water stuff very surface level, kind of, you know, in the in the mind frame of water is a human right. Hold that thought because it changes as I get older and start to learn things, learn government a little bit better. So um, summer of, I finished my master's in the spring of 2018. That summer I go to Morocco and I study water a little bit more in the context of global warming and like climate change. So I partner with a nonprofit in Morocco and some ladies who had did a Fulbright project, they crafted or got together and started a nonprofit for themselves. We brought four black girls that are in high school to Morocco. They had never left the country before. A very exciting experience for them. But we brought them to the southern part of Morocco, which is um, Agadir, Morocco, to learn about the connectedness of climate change, gender justice, and water accessibility. I know it's like a lot. But the premise is just this particular nonprofit that's in Morocco, they service about 600 rural residents in a very remote part of Morocco. They provide them drinking water access from this technology that they crafted, which they look like big nets. So these mm-hmm. nets capture fog and they turn fog into drinking water for all of these people in the rural part of Morocco. Very fascinating. I got to learn about the impact of bottled water on the environment. And of course, like climate change impact on the availability of fresh water. Tied into that conversation is like water affordability and what that means in different contexts. Then I went back 
summer 2019 to kind of do the same research, but my research shifted a little bit because I wanted to know what's the relationship between nonprofits, governments, and private entities' role in supplying water to people in Morocco. Very broad, I know, topic. I'm still like kind of trying to feel my way around, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm still like in water. I am. So then I start my PhD program in political science in the spring of 2019. Still very interested in water. Again, don't know where I'm going. I'm also interested in like social movement. So naturally, I'm moving in like environmental justice space. It's not until I passed my exams in the spring of 2021 that I land on Jackson because if you remember there was a storm on Valentine's Day like weekend or week of 2021 and it had knocked the power out in Texas and that was like the whole big thing it was people freezing in Texas because of their grid system it was just poo-poo yep. right but I saw this um, headline about Jackson not having water and my first thought was this city that is so influential in the civil rights movement, why do they not have something as simple as drinking water? Like what what happened? Right. What does that mean? So I started poking around a little bit and I very much was going in the direction of environmental just, injustice very much going along the lines of racism. Not to say that racism is not a thing because like we discussed before, racism is to Mississippi as Seattle or as rain is to Seattle, right? So not that, you know, racism isn't there, but there are other influences as I move through this research that also bear a lot of impact on the status of the water system there now. One of those yeah. things is, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. One of those things. <laughs> I was just going to say, one of those things is our deep miseducation of structure of the U.S. government, how it functions, and our understanding of that government is made of people and that we have the power to change those people when it's necessary. So that's how I arrived at water, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> but listen, so first off, l- let me say this, that in my starting with um, wanting to talk about water, probably started at least at least the, and I wasn't doing this, this show then, but I remember that storm and sort of the grid failing in Texas. But because I went to school in Jackson, at Jackson State, my son is there now as a student at at Jackson state, that's where, I I mean, that's a, Jackson is a critical part of my formation. Our show is about black stuff, right? Right. My show is about black. Just, it's just, when people ask me, what's, what's the show about? It's about black stuff. It's about black black stuff. And so Jackson's 80% black. So, you know, I definitely was interested in it. But my first entry very much in in terms of it's the long history of hardcore racism in Mississippi. There's, there's no way to get past that. But then there's the environmental angles of, you know, weather disasters or what have you. But and there's always the politics, because outside of electoral politics, government has functions that are ongoing that people don't know about and that I'm beginning to learn how little, the more I find out about things, the 
more I realize that I don't understand things. And as in digging into this issue with Jackson and the crisis that we had about a month ago of not having water pressure and drinking water, what have you, is really an output of a really big problem. And to back up, to be fair to to Jackson, in my preparation for this, Australia, India, California, and Arizona, Toledo, Ohio, Baltimore, Dixmore, Illinois. I I mean, it is not just Atlanta. Right. It is, it is, it's bigger than Jackson, except if you are in Jackson and you are on dialysis, right, and you need water. Or it's COVID. Or it's COVID. It's literally a public health crisis. And you don't have water yet. (laughs) Yes. And it's bigger than Jackson, except if you live in Jackson and you are already in a city that's against 80 percent black, but 24 percent. So let's call it a quarter of the population below the poverty line. So we're not talking about just go to Costco and get some bottled water. I'm already struggling to make the ends meet. And now I have to use bottled water. Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a big global and complex issue. So I, I want to thank you for that. So while you were saying, you know, you were going through a lot, I really want people to understand that this is a lot. And you and our conversation so far, you're reminding me already of, and I don't know this person, I, I don't know this person or can't imagine, but the belt line here, Ryan Gravel was started as a part of his dissertation, right? Clint Watts, who just won a Pulitzer Prize for his book is How the Word is Passed, mm-hmm. was working on his PhD as he was writing the book. And I I, I somehow think that you are right there on, on this yeah. uh, issue. So, so let's <laughs> Let's let's get involved. Let's get let's get a mo- little more into it or what have you. What are some of the big issues about before we get to Jackson? Just a little more time before we get to Jackson, just to st- set the stage. When people talk about water access issues or clean water and safe drinking water or what have you, what are some of the global and then maybe national issues around water before we even get to Jackson? So globally, um, like you said, water access. So I spent, like I said, two summers in Morocco. These people who live in the rural part, um, traditionally women would walk to this you know, particular place that was very far away, but there was fresh water available for them to you know, pick up by hand. But because of climate change, that water dries up quicker than what it normally you know, does, right? So now they have to walk even further to go get water. So the nets that were placed there are to kind of, I don't want to say eliminate, but lessen the need for people to walk further to go get water. I spent six weeks in Ghana this past summer, kind of indirectly, like for my own selfish reasons, you know, looking at water. In Ghana, it is also water accessibility, but also the degradation that not having clean and safe drinking water systems, like piping systems, does to the environment. So I'm talking about bottled water or like bottled plastic uh, waste that is just 
you know, thrown around, right? So we couldn't drink the water there. We had to buy a bottle of water. So imagine the trash that is accumulated from all of these, you know, literally millions of bottles of water. Now you can drop that same thing in Jackson, right? The parallels are incredible, okay? Incredible, because while I'm there, I'm reading the clarion ledger like a maniac while I'm there, but I'm also seeing, you know, the things that are going on in Ghana. So for on, on a global scale, you know, that's there. Climate change is changing the availability of water. In 2017, water was introduced on the stock market as a tradable good, right? So now, like, we, we get into some dark, you know, places, right? I mean, water is already a commodity, but because of the the rapid scarcity of it, it's getting like more terrible. And we know that when things get bad, Black people always feel it first. Black communities always feel it first. And then again, like more broadly, environmental justice issues or environmental issues are something that are, you know, Black people are deeply connected to the environment. Environmental things, gardening, and like all the stuff we say is white people stuff, it's Black people stuff first. Right. Your grandmama used to grow tomatoes in her backyard. So we're very connected, you know, to the environment. So I want us to, as black people, like get out of thinking that environmental issues are not black people stuff because it is. Me too. (laughs) Me too. And as I've said on this show, our list is probably tired of me saying this, but as I've over the years had opportunities to serve on boards or what have you. And when I have an opportunity around environmental stuff, I'm like, I want to do black stuff. Not, um, not even realizing that, that, <laughs> that, you know, the environment is is very much black stuff. And I will tell you, I've had the opportunity with my family to travel to Ethiopia and to uh, Zimbabwe and just driving through the countryside and rural areas that going to get water in the morning for the day and for a family is a big issue. And it's also a woman's issue because that is typically women's work and going early in the morning and long distances and carrying water back to families. And I will tell you, we also, when I was in Ethiopia, the best food I've ever eaten, by the way, and uh, we also had a day on one of the rivers there or at one of the lakes where we were just, just, it was kind of an ecological thing, looking at the birds and fish and crocs and that kind of thing. But it was really sad just to see the amount of bottles, plastic bottles of water around there. And um, when we had Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks, who's over at Spelman in their environmental justice program, do you know her? Um, I know her name, but I haven't, no, I haven't gone okay. over there to meet her. Shame, shame on me, I know. Yeah, no, she was great. When when I was working on the episode in preparation to talk to her last season, I came across that West Africa and Ghana is kind of the world's landfill, like all the clothes you give away and everything. And so I could imagine what you saw there in terms of of, of just just how it's really despairing to see you know, the the condition and what you would think of as something like water, just having clean water is is a right. Or you would think it's a right, or you would think it's a no brainer, but it's 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 far more complex than far that. Far more complicated. So let me let me say this though, because in my preparation for this, what I found is we all know the phrase, and it's very true, that all politics is local. 
And all water is local at the same time. It's one issue that is super local. I understand it's a macro issue going on there, but there's a, a local aspect to this. So take me from, or take us from not starting with the boil water notice that was just lifted about three weeks ago, but let's go back in terms of Jackson and Jackson, Mississippi, sort of water infrastructure and its history with water. Right. So the city was founded in the 1800s. I forget the date. I want to say 1822. It was named after the former president, Andrew Jackson. It was not the original capital of Mississippi. Natchez actually was, but then it moved to Jackson. But Jackson served as a railroad hub, so a transportation hub. So the money was flowing. Okay, the money was there. It was there. They had, and I want to also point out that it was not all Black men. Or majority black. So the city of Jackson purchases their water system in 1908. It is a very small system, as you can imagine, because it is not at the, you know, quite at the, the population scale, you know, that it is now. Right. So as we move through history and the city starts to expand, they start to collect like smaller water systems up underneath the jurisdiction of the city of Jackson's water. So we see early as far, as far back as 1922 in the Clarion Ledger, where local leaders are saying, hey, we like the water system is like at capacity, 1922, 1922. OK, we're going to start there. That's 100 years ago. And over time, we see this problem consistently pop up. So I have like a few notes here. In 1948, Alan C. Thomas was the mayor. And around this time, there is, you know, a lot of activity around the civil rights movement. And there, are, and Jackson, again, is a hub of this particular movement, right? But in at the time, Jackson is still not all Black or majority Black. Alan C. Smith says in his, like, campaign platform that he's going to focus funding on sewer upgrades. Because from 1922 until this particular time, they're still seeing water main breaks. The pipes are not sufficient enough. So we could argue at the start of the city, the water system is ill-equipped. And just to back up a, a smidgen more, water systems and sewage systems come into existence in the United States because people are getting sick from waterborne illnesses, right? So like typhoid, we see the first water system pop up as early as 1799 in Philly. And then in New York, they also develop their own system. It starts private and it moves to public. Railroad systems actually is what made, um, so water in the context of the United States is a utility. It's listed. So we have gas, electricity, water, uh, broadband, internet at the, uh, now. But while they're building ra- railroads to go out west, the United States is like, well, y'all can't monopolize water. We have to create some kind of regulatory agency that puts a cap on what you can charge for water, because we need to continue to expand West, but obviously people need water, right? So you can't charge an arm and a leg. So that's when you start seeing what we understand now as public service commissioners pop up. But in Jackson, they own their own water system, meaning that the public service commissioner has nothing to do with the state of Mississippi has nothing to do with their water other than serving as a commission or regulatory system to make sure the quality of water meaning there's the, the lead and copper content is in compliance with the EPA. 
Is that now or then in terms of this that? Is na- uh, this, is, this is now. This is at the start and now. Because we have a federalist system, right? We have fed, state, local. The state of Mississippi has to grant this authority to the city of Jackson. And so that's what the state of Mississippi did in order for them to have their own water system. So, yeah. So in in 1948, um, Alan C. Thompson, you know, he makes sewage like, you know, this big thing. At the same time, he's upset at the citizens of Jackson, particularly black people, because the Civil Rights Act actually passes, which makes for public facilities are now available to black people. I remember reading one thing in particular. At that time, there were like four or there were five public swimming pools in Jackson. He closed down four and he made the fifth one private. So he gave it to the YMCA. And so this public or this federal funding that you would have had to perhaps upgrade, you know, these public facilities, you won't get because you closed them. Right. So when we want to, you know, give a nod to racism, it's definitely there at this point in time. Right. So so we see just this push or this, you know, outwardly racist things happening in Mississippi, in the state of Mississippi legislature. And so then we're going to speed up a little bit. So we have Brown v. Board, right, that that happens in 1954. But Mississippi did not integrate, you know, for a long time. I think it's like 12 years. So when they were forced to do it, they were like, hey, y'all do this, okay, now. You see 11,000 people leave the city of Jackson, which ultimately changes their tax base, right? Still not predominantly Black at this point. I keep making this reference because I hear, like, a lot of people saying, like, oh, it's because it's run by Black people that, you know, the management and the upkeep and the upgrades are not done, which is why I had to go all the way back 100 years to make the point that water systems, because they're underneath the ground or because there's a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of who is responsible for water infrastructure, this has been kicked down the road for 100 years, essentially. It's been kicked down the road. Yeah. So so one thing that I think is important in, in what you are, are saying there is, is that when we talk about racism, at least for me, if we were only talking about a racial slur, then, you know, we could fight in the streets about that or we could I could cuss you out. Or I could you know, I got I, could, I got a slick mouth, too. I could I could come up with something that we could fight. But where racism comes in is actually in the structures. And so. We had Brown versus Board, like you said, in 54. It's not until 68, 69, when the federal government says, hey, you got to do this. In 70, it hits Jackson and they have to do it. So you get the white flight and you get the tax base. And it's not, it doesn't, it, it trickles over time. But at the same time, if something really good going on, Clean Water Act, Safe Water Act, mm-hmm. you get federal money that you can spend to upgrade it. Does Jackson take advantage of upgrading the systems in the 70s? Um, so, yeah, so 1978, they're actually cited by the EPA and were, because they violated the Clean Water Act. And so, essentially, the sewage system was not up to par. They get some money to deal with that in 78 and 79. I read this article, Dale Danks was the mayor at the time, and 
when he ran for re-election in 79, he says, like, we have to deal with this water and sewage issue infrastructure. I'm going to raise the water and sewage taxes or like rates. And he says in the interview, like, I think that's what cost me my election, that I said I was going to raise the rates. Right. So this brings into question a whole nother like set, you know, set of questions. Right. Like how important is water infrastructure to citizens? If you know, if this issue has been going on, we had 1978, 79, right? If this issue has been going on and your mayor's like, hey, hey, I need you, I need to raise these rates in order for us to have a system that is operable. They're like, no, nah, we're not going to vote for him. We're going to you know, move on, right? So then uh, in 79, he also calls for an investigation of like, what is the actual condition of the system? And he, they just report that it's very not good, right? So there's a storm in 89, much like the one that happened in 2021. And people are like, we got to get this together. We got to get it together. Then the 90s come and there is a new water treatment facility plant that is built. It's the OB Curtis plant, water treatment facility plant. They had one built. The first one was built in 1914. 1914. The next one isn't built until 1990, like in the 90s, right? So this particular water treatment facility can process more water. And this on the surface looks good, but if you are processing more water, but the actual distribution system is cast iron pipes that are crumbling underneath the ground, how good is a new shiny new system if the pipes are still so far? So in Jackson, like, it's very much a distribution issue. So the pipes are, you know, cast iron, The ca- and the pipes are what's actually poisoning people with the lead and the copper. But also there are unfilled positions in their water treatment facility plants, which makes the capacity of the, of the plants lower than, you know, what it actually could be. And so there's even a note, like, in this one article that I read that even in the 60s, which it was not predominantly black then, they were experiencing a tremendous amount of water main breakages. So the same things that they're experiencing now, low water pressure, dirty brown water, right? So again, this is not a new iteration. In 1992, the city raises over $3 million to deal with the water issue. And they attempt to, of course, I don't want to say patchwork, but that's what it is. Like patchwork, you know, the things that they could. Because in all actuality, the last report that I read is going to take almost $2 billion, with a B, 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 billion dollars to get Jackson's water system in compliance. And then the just the, the element of time, right? Like how do you spend $2 billion? You can't spend $2 billion in six months, right? So... And so the first black mayor, Dr. Johnson, Harvey Johnson, says that. He's like, I have a plan. It's a slow, it's methodical, but it's necessary to do it in chunks because if we get $2 billion tomorrow, we can't spend it that fast. We don't have the capacity to spend it. So, yes. And so so a couple of things there just want to just put in context to make sure I have this right. Jackson, first off, gets his first black mayor in 1997. And so just for the people, and and we're going to get to this because all politics is local and accountability is local. And the people there now are going to have to deal with that. 
And we're going to talk about that on this show, frankly, and honestly, <laughs> what have you. But the problems with Jackson and its water sort of predate now. One other thing that well, a couple of things I want to just 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 add into there is when you talked about just cities growing and, and, and just people getting sick. Again, we've done a show about Ida B. Wells's life and sort of Memphis in the 1870s, 1880s has the yellow fever outbreak. A lot of people die. That's because of non-clean water. Now, Memphis right now, whereas has had zero EPA citations in the last five years, Jackson's had 170. We'll get to all of that in a minute. But even during that period of when the mayor, and this is important, and I want people to hear this because I don't like paying taxes either, right? I don't think no anybody, one does, right? No one does, no one right? Does. But there's something in that sort of late 70s, 80s period when Reagan comes in, this whole idea of small government and your taxes and, and what's going towards it. Listen, the taxes go for things. And it, now it, it is it is incumbent on politicians to be transparent. It's on, incumbent on citizens to force that accountability. And we'll get to that. But that's that's just important that and I, I really appreciate you setting the stage that this is this is a long term issue and it's going to be a long term fix. It's not something that's going to to change just overnight. So you were mentioning one other thing. So Jackson's is about distribution water issues, whereas Flint was about... Flint is the actual water source. Okay, so I'm glad you bring that up because a lot of people are like, oh, it's like Flint. And I'm like, eh, not kind of, if you want to go there, but not really. So the issue in Flint was they changed the water source from the Detroit... Like they they had a um, a contract with the Detroit water system. They hired a city manager to come in and the city manager was like, hey, I think we should start getting water from the Flint River, which everyone had knew the Flint River was already nasty. But if we get if we get this water from the Flint River for like two years or so, we could save like millions of dollars. So they switched the water source. They didn't tell anyone. And that's how people got sick. In Jackson, they don't have a water source issue. It is the distribution of water that is poisoning people. So the water is running through these pipes that are so old. The lead and the copper content is seeping into the treated water. But not only that, about 40% of the treated water is going back into the ground because the pipes are crumbling. When I say they're crumbling, literally, like, if you, you can't pick the pipe up because it crumbles in your hand. And that it makes the issue in Jackson unique because it's a matter I don't want I don't want to like simplify it, but it's a matter of changing out all of these old pipes. Of course that takes time, resources, and money, but it's different from Flint in in those respects. It's similar in that the agencies and the people that are in these agencies that are in charge of doing these things were not one, we don't understand how they work. And two, perhaps they weren't as transparent as they should be when it comes to communicating the issues of the water systems to the citizens. One thing, I get some flack about this when I say this, 
But I think that it's necessary to say one thing that I can say about the structure of U.S. government. I know it's racist and we have all this history. I know all that. It's not perfect. But in some respects, I think it's genius because there are multiple opportunities for the citizens to change it in that we have voting. Right. We have like the people in California are quick to do a referendum. (laughs) They're like, hey. We, we're trying to get this done, right? We have all these avenues that we can take. We have literally people power. And I'm saying this because if you go to other countries, the people don't fathom to speak out about their government. They don't fathom to get on the internet and say how they feel about how the country is ran because they cannot. So in that respect, I think that is genius. I think we have to learn how to, how to make it work for us instead of saying it doesn't work because we don't know how it works. Does that make sense? Like, it's not a conspiracy because you don't understand it. It's just you don't understand it. No. Yeah, and and listen, I I, I generally, a big part of why I want to also do the show is I don't don't do well with conspiracy theories and what have you. (laughs) I I really, you know, I can hear something and, 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 and given I don't know what's going on, but... I was telling a friend of mine yesterday that you've got to double click on everything, right? So because you hear something, well, what's behind it? Double click or what have you. The source is important. To double click a little bit on Jackson's water issues. And I want to make sure I'm going to check in with you here on this because the Department of Justice has notified the U.S., the federal Department of Justice has notified Jackson that it's going to take actions about this these water issues on six things that I have here. One is about the staffing, and I want to get into that. The staffing at the water plants. There's a failure to implement a plan per a previous EPA order, and maybe that's one of them that you've talked about. There's a failure to rehab the filter I think that's that OB Curtis, which you which you mentioned there. That's three of them. There's the corrosive control for lead. There's a failure to, in copper, which you just talked about. So I'm trying, just trying to set every the audience straight. Then there's the uh, it's exceeding the contaminant levels, which is five. And then there's turbidity. That's a new word for me. Levels, which that gets me color that the EPA sort of test for it. So Jackson's got some really big issues to resolve there. Help me understand where do those issues sit? Are those federal issues, state issues, or is that with the city of who's responsible for fixing that? State and local. State and local. Contrary to popular belief. Okay. So this is how I explain things to my students. I always go to policing because it's, I don't want to say the most relevant, but it's like front and center, I would say, right? So if we call for the feds to fix everything, like policing, to fix policing at a local level, we would literally have a national police force in which you would police all the cities the same way. One of the genius things about the U.S. Constitution, the 10th Amendment, grant states' rights, And one of those things is to shape, to manage, to craft eligibility eligibility requirements 
for things such as policing, up to and including how a water system is managed and maintained. So the federal government is stepping in, obviously because it's made national news. You could argue it's because of the politics that that you know are seen on the ground that the mayor and the um, governor are openly kind of like feuding with each other, which is very interesting. Also, the city council is like feuding with the mayor. And also the role that Benny Thompson plays in this, right? He sits on the oversight and reforms committee. So he's very like, like on the ground with this issue. And so that's why it's important to understand the authority and the reach of these particular elected officials. Representative Thompson can do that because he has that authority to do that, right? And because he's a person, he cares about his constituents. I want to put that in there because he very well could have been like, oh, you know, it's not, it's out of my control, right? So there are things that elected officials can do based on their constitutional authority. And I keep, I want to emphasize that point because I think sometimes we look for these elected officials to reach far beyond their reach and they will go to jail for it. Yes, yes. So- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, and as somebody who wanted the George Floyd Policing Act to to pass, it's also very important to to for people to understand that a lot of that is symbolic and very much in the sense of it is a it's a thing, and it's very important to use the federal government as a bully pulpit and to set the tone or what have you. But it wouldn't change policing. Nor would it because when nor would you really want it to, because if we take South Africa, the apartheid era was the South African police and it was controlled out of the federal government and Pretoria. And that's not something that you want. Donald Trump, when he took office, said, I will send federal troops into my hometown, Chicago. So we have to be very careful about when we say we want the the federal government to, to do everything because there's consequences there's consequences to to that so to this end so we have you kind of touched on it we have governor mississippi governor tate reeves who was elected and i want to say 20 or 21 he's newly elected they have weird elections i don't know yeah Yeah. and and we have um (laughs) chakwe lumumba mayor chakwe lumumba who was re-elected in maybe 19 20 21 so both of these men are in place right now and they have different backgrounds different philosophies different ideologies and i would almost say that if you wanted to conjure up like if you were if you were casting a movie and you wanted to say hey i want a mississippi white governor who is a career because tate reese has been in mississippi politics since 2004 as the state treasurer and i'm going to get to how important these local elections are and he's the governor now if you wanted to conjure up a i need a a conservative southern governor who is also going to be, let's see, what's the word that I wanted to use? Prototypically and easy to spot out is that is the person who is 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 punishing us through systemic racism. He, he would he would be that. And then Chakwe Lumumba would be, if you say, okay, so now we need somebody to go against. Like you have arch nemesis. <laughs> an arch nemesis who is from a 
Pan-Africanist background, a Black empowerment and self-determination. He is the son of a very dynamic social and political leader and former mayor. So you have these two people who are kind of set with fixing this issue that are in many ways, they're definitely politically and socially opposite. Having said that, can the Jackson water issue be fixed without the state government? No. Can the, if Mississippi, and this is, you know, in my background, Tate says he wants it to be a place to attract businesses and, you know, for, you know, Mississippi has a big brain drain where it loses half of its college graduates every year, more than any other state. Can Tate Reeves be an effective governor if he wants to bring in other businesses or to get those 50 percent of people staying, achieve that goal with the capital city not having clean water? Nope, nope, nope. They so I want to be clear, like structurally, the city of Jackson has no authority unless the state gives it to them. In the Constitution, there's no mention of cities, which means that cities are the child of a state. So there has to be cooperation on the state and local level to get this fixed. This That's the politics of it. Politics is the art of negotiation. Somewhere along the line, we have lost like that understanding of like what what it means to be like a politician or what it means to politic, if you will. And it's negotiation. We have like formed, you know, partisan lines and we take sides of on issues based on parties, which doesn't get us anywhere. We don't talk like these elected officials aren't talking to each other. And it's very evident because the governor like had several press conferences, didn't invite the mayor. Right. And it was like, you know, it's like, where's the mayor? He's like, oh, he's around. Like, what the the fighting among them is troubling and is concerning because, you know, just to play, I won't say devil's advocate, but if I'm turning on, you know, my white male frame, because sometimes you have to do that. If I'm in the feds, why would I like give you all money if y'all are fighting amongst each other? Why would I do that? Why? I mean, it's it's because we, we have conversations about morals and principles and all this. And it's not because whose morals are we talking about when we yeah, say absolutely. it's morally or it's ethical? Whose morals and ethics, right? So if I'm the feds, I'm not giving y'all any money because y'all can't even get yourself together. And then even further, the city council and the mayor doesn't, they don't get along. They, they're constantly fighting. They're in the, the newspaper you know, back and forth talking about people taking bribes because also the city of Jackson has, they just recently settled it before a few months. They didn't have a company to pick up their trash. Yeah. Yeah. No. So yeah. there's a lot of infighting. And again, for someone for, you know, people looking for funding and assistance, if you can't help yourselves, why would I step in and help you? Right. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Pan-African mayor in the U.S. government? Because you are a U.S. government official. What does that mean? Like, how do we conceive of that? I think that's a whole nother paper. And I wanted to go there for my research, but my committee was like, that's too much, Jamie. Pull back. So, but I think like all of these things, right? In order, And I'm asking these questions to be practical. I'm a practically brained person. I'm not... 
I don't like fear. I mean, like fear is necessary, but I'm very much like I want to be a problem solver, which is like why I look at Jackson. This is the problem. How do we solve it? But before we solve it, we have to understand the complexities of the actual problem. And part of that is telling the truth about what is lawfully correct, not how you feel, lawfully and constitutionally correct, what agencies, you know, have authority over these particular issues, how do they work, what are the politics inside of these agencies that produce the outcome of Jackson's water system, right? That's what I want to answer. So with that, then, what is the political framework? Because we can't look at this right now as a as um, as a moral issue. It is. But to solve it and, and, and we need people with the bully pit to to say loudly and proudly and as much as you can that, hey, this is unacceptable to for a major American city to have people or and people to not have clean water. But let's pull it back to sort of your area of of expertise and how you've been looking at this. What sort of the political framework to be, to begin to solve it, not to solve it all, but just to begin to solve it? What are sort of the political steps? What how can how can citizens help to solve this? I'm so glad you asked that because the US government is a social contract. It is a contract between the people they serve and said entity and state, right? The state. We have to participate. I want to read some numbers to you that, yep. that I recently Please. found. So the city of Jackson had a general election in 2021, right? When the mayor was just elected. Okay. It had a 17.28% turnout rate. This is city officials. This is your mayor who serves as the executive of the city. This is your city council members who is the legislative body of your city. These are the various other elected offices at the municipal level. 17.28% people showed up. There are about 150,000 people in the city of Jackson. 111 of them are registered voters. Only 19,000 people voted in the municipal election in 2021. That is extremely low. So just to, to, so now I do have to get a little moral and maybe misty. If we think about voting rights, now I'm just going to go there. Fannie Lou Hamer went to prison and physically beaten, Cheney, Schwerner, Goodman, murdered. Medgar Evers, murdered in yard, right? Murdered. In Jackson. In, in Jackson. Yeah. And so when we're talking about, because listen, when we I posted Dr. Greer's episode and there was a lot in there about voting. And I, I, I just cannot tell you the amount of people that are saying, well, you know, they're not doing this and this, just not understand the voting. And, and, and listen, in word, please, because if you don't vote, if you don't vote, I, I understand. I want reparations. <laughs> I do. I do. I do. Having said that, your streets 
your water, your public school, your electricity, your policing. That is so that is so so when you're saying so we're gonna keep going. Okay. Seventeen percent. Keep going with your numbers. That that's pathetic. That was the only, I, I had to stop there. I stopped there because yeah. I said, again, rolling back to like my original question of even thinking about Jackson, how can a city that was so influential and get, first off, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act are the most innovative, amazing pieces of legislation to ever pass because they required for states to do something. One of those things was making sure that the privilege, because it's not a right, it can be taken away. The privilege to vote is accessible to more people. It's written in law. So for a city to be so influential in that, but also like all of these organizations that came out of Jackson, right? You got you got NAACP that's active, that's that's like making all of this happen, right? SNCC, like I can go on and on Nick, about all these great, Corps, right? Freedom all Riders, great, everything. There's nothing. Yeah, you can't. Jackson is it. <laughs> and, and, and listen, for black people, again, back to the voting. If you are in California, if you are in Washington D.C., if you are concerned about Jackson's water, you need to vote and have a. Congress and a Senate and an, an executive branch. And then, listen, all this stuff has to go to the courts. We missed the boat on some of that. Man. If you care about Jackson, you need to be voting in California. You need to be voting everywhere because everywhere. It, it all works together. Let me, I, I don't want to put you on the spot on this. If you had the number, it's fine. If not, it, I'll get it after the episode. Do you know what the participation rate for the last Mississippi state election was? I don't. I was I was kind of looking for it, but I ran out of time, but I don't. Well, well let me, because and, and the reason why is I would imagine it's low because we're, we're having, and, and when I say low, I'm not picking on Mississippians now. We tend to vote for, you know, federal, like o- Obama's on the ticket or Trump's on the ticket, so let's vote against whatever it is. There's some emotional thing, but Tate Reeves, who's the governor, who I got no love for, right? But let's say this. He's been treasurer, lieutenant governor, and now governor. And the people that released the funds in Mississippi, the, the bond commission, and I'm getting very wonky here, of how funds get distributed or what have you, mm-hmm. it's those three people. He's held That's all true. three roles, okay? that, And so if the participation rate is even close to that for state elections and for those things that people don't think they care about public service commission, attorney general, treasurer, lieutenant governor, Mm -hmm. like, Hey, Hey, hey. and I'm talking to everybody right now. I get, I get how Herschel is like, that's a, that's a topic, but if that's what gets you there, understand that there's still secretary of state. There's still so many things. There's, there's so many things. So I, I'm going to look that up for everyone. So, you started with numbers, but what's the political sort of framework to solving this problem? Voting clearly is a big one. Yeah, so we have to, like, the framework is just that the power comes from the bottom. So if we have these voting numbers that are extremely low, it is suggestive that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, well, whatever happens to me happens to me because I didn't even give my opinion at the poll. So we have to, and I think... We see some of this language that, um, like voter suppression language in Georgia. 
I'm not sure on the ground what it is in Mississippi, but I will say it has been very difficult for me to get into contact with nonprofit organizations that are supposed to be over, you know, um, educating voters about when to vote, how to vote. I don't want to say who to vote for, but just candidate information. So if I'm having a difficult time, I'm sure that the people there are as well. So we have to get in a space to understand structure and function of government. And I keep going back there because I think it's intimidating to people, right? Because sometimes political language is so, you know, it's almost, you have to have a degree sometimes to understand what these people are saying. But there are people like like me, I love translating what's going on in very simple terms. So we have to get to one, educating people about structures and function of government and also empowering them with language, right? With the messaging that we use. So to pivot like a little bit to Georgia, Georgia, like, you know, was on, was made national news for their voting, their voting, one of their voting laws, right? Or their revamping of voting laws. And and people kept saying it was voter suppression, right? So we see this now acting in real time in that people, the Secretary of State website is amazing, live data going, right? So as it stands, there are enormous amount of people who are participating in early voting, right? And so one of the components of it was like, oh, like we can't give people water in public. We are we in the lines. We can't give people food in the lines. If the lines are moving quickly, what do you need to give them water and food for? They have in the provision of the law, which was suggested by people who are poll workers, who are on the ground, who work the polls consistently, say, hey, what if we put someone in place that floats throughout the the voting precinct and that every four hours they report on how long it takes somebody to vote, how many people are in line? You do it four times. So I think the times are like, it might be like nine o'clock, noon, one o'clock, four, and maybe like six. And these numbers are reported to Secretary of State. Like you get an iPad, it's reported to Secretary of State. If they see that, you know, the line is too long or there's an issue, someone from the Secretary of State office is on the phone. They're like, hey, how can, what's going on? How can I help you? Or And they will send what you need. So that's not depression. So what you're describing is... <laughs> is streamlining. Is, <laughs> Yeah, what so what Tanahisi Coates said is that 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 first off you gotta vote, right? Right. <laughs> That's number one. And then voting is just like civic hygiene. That's just the first. It's just like brushing your teeth. You still do more throughout the day because what you are describing is is that in order to even the government in this case, let's just go to just two things. Just to one one super local for Jackson. The staffing at the OB Curtis water plant and throughout the public works in Jackson is woefully understaffed or what have you. That's a local issue for the mayor. And so when you're talking about, the, you know, I'm making this number up, but I don't think it's the actual made up number. It might be the real one is that for a water plant that requires 10 sort of professionals or certified professionals, you've got four staff. Don't quote me on that. If you want to put pressure on that mayor, you damn sure are going to need more than 17 percent of the people vote. Same thing if Tate Reeves is going, he is going to do him. But over many years in his role as treasurer, in his role as lieutenant governor, he has in the legislature has worked against Jackson systematically 
by not bringing proposals to the floor, by not, um, yes, in his role in 2013, I, I go through to some of these numbers too, not bringing okay. proposals to the floor, not bringing proposals to the floor, not bringing proposals to the floor to vote. I keep saying that now. And in, in, it was in the debate in, in, in when he was running in 2013 and he was running against a Tea Party candidate and the person was saying, you approve everything that goes through for, from Jackson. And Jackson in Mississippi is like Chicago to the to the nation. So like you're saying, Chicago is like saying the N-word politically without saying it. And Reeve said, essentially, well, there's nothing to vote on in Jackson because we don't bring it to vote. Okay. And so even Benny Thompson is saying, you know, we send money, we being the federal government sends money to Jackson, but it doesn't end up in Jackson. Well, Tate Reeves doesn't have to be there. If the numbers statewide for voting participation are held below 20 percent is if it's below 100 percent, as far as I'm concerned, because 111,000 registered people in Jackson can change the state of Mississippi, period. That's point blank, period. So let's say 11,000 asleep or hungover after the tailgate from Jackson State. 100,000 voting people in Mississippi can change things. So that's that is really important. Let me ask you ask you this, because. There is a component of of, you know, how people can get involved. We had Helen Butler, um, who who, who's I love Miss Butler. Yes. Yes. She She talked about at the beginning. She was our very first guest. And she is someone who approaches these things as, okay, if that's the game they plan, she's going to turn around and say, Here's what we need to do, y'all. And I have to, to, I've always said this, or I've said it a couple of times on this show publicly, Helen Butler, Latosha Brown, Stacey Abrams, three black women in terms of just, this is how we need to combat this from a vote. And they changed the 2020 federal election for president and state. For people who are wondering, you know, what do I do? What can I do? Yeah, you got to vote, but we need smart people, capable people who are prepared to do more so that you can agitate and agitate the government. And one more thing, and I'm going to shut up because now I'm on the roll. Now I'm on the roll. <laughs> no, you're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> 1868 for people listening. This is three years after black people have been in bondage. Women couldn't vote then, white or black, women couldn't vote. Black men, half a million black men, that's a lot of people elected a president in 1868, and then you get 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. You get public schools in the South through Reconstruction. Black power, yeah, we need to support Black businesses, right? When they are when they have good customer service, just want to put that plug on. Right, we need to do that. But we need to, if, if you're not going to have economic power without political mm. power yeah. they go hand in Say hand it's, yeah. it is it, they 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 go hand in hand so all right let me ask you this and because we we're, we're going a little longer than I wanted to but this is important but let me let me say this sort of what are your next steps in terms of your work around water what are you doing next and where do you see this going 
So, of course, I want to finish, you know, my dissertation. I hope to be finished uh, this summer. Hope, very, very hopeful that I finish this summer. I would like to go on the Hill for a little bit, like work in D.C. I applied for some fellowships, so I'm still, you know, waiting out for there. But I don't want to stay in D.C. I want to actually come back to Atlanta and work for the EPA. I don't know whether it's going to be in, like, compliance or, like, in the research part. I definitely want to stay, like, in the water you know, kind of realm because there is so much money being pumped into state and local governments because the infrastructure bill passed, right? So if I could find, you know, ways to collect, to connect local governments to funding so that they can improve their water systems, um, I would love to do that. So like in the consulting realm, I definitely want to stay like in the water, you know, kind of realm. I want to go to D.C. just to get that federal experience. But like I said, I know the meat and potatoes is at the state and local level. So I guess I don't really like answer the question. I'm just kind of like. No, that's, no, that's <laughs> not, but one thing that you just said, and I think it's really important, is, is that there's no one that's more important than the other. Let me say that. But people tend to focus on let's vote for the president. But. Your state and local is just as important as the the president. We got to get past this voting for president and we got to get get past even I'm still, you know, bitter about 2016 of people saying I don't like Hillary. I don't. Listen, I think I like Obama, but I ain't never sat down right. with them. You know what I'm saying? Right. I never had a beer with right. them. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it would be cool. But those people work for us. The only Obama that you have to like is Michelle. Right. Everybody else, that's the only Obama <laughs> that you have to hear <laughs> is Queen Michelle. Right. Outside right. of that, you know, when he was president, President Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama, State Senator Barack Obama is there to do something for you, and it starts with the people who are voting and if somebody is trying to keep you from voting, then they know what that exactly that power is exactly. and, and, and what can it and what what it can do to change change government. And, and we're gonna wrap up after this, I promise. So with Jackson, back to Jackson again, because I heard Benny Thompson say this. I'm, I'm glad, yes. So Benny Thompson again, who is the congressman there and a big part of his district represents Jackson. And he's Jackson. Jackson covers a lot of his district. Right. And he is also a very influential member in Congress in general. He said just um, maybe it was the beginning of September when things were really hot in terms of the crisis that he hasn't seen a plan yet. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, Mayor Lumumba, and I believe him too, has said we've delivered many bills, or you know, we've we've gone to the state legislature many times about here's the problems in Jackson, and 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 this is Mark's definition of my experience in working in big institutions or corporate is that is one thing to say, okay, here's a list of problems that I need funding for. But this, to your point about the $2 billion to fix, requires a plan. Has Jackson presented its plan yet? So I'm very glad you asked that because 
when it was very hot, they had, you know, all these people on TV, right? They had like the FEMA manager, they had the EPA administrator, they had Representative Thompson, they had the mayor, the, like all these people, right? I listened to, I just happened to have the news on at the time and they were interviewing the EPA administrator. And what he said was very illuminating to perhaps the status of a plan of the plans that they had been talking or that they had already, you know, crafted. He said the EPA is here or has been working with Jackson to come up with a more competitive plan, competitive plan Mm -hmm. so that we can get funds to Jackson. To me, because again, if you understand structure and function of government, the state doesn't have to give Jackson anything. They don't have to lawfully, right? Morally, sure. So what it suggested to me was like kind of what you said, that perhaps their plans were not tangible, right, at the time. If you know that something, if this project needs $2 billion, like I would be interested to see what the, like how the plan was laid out. And then I also, um, like this is what I'm working on now, like, if Jackson submits, you know, these plans, do they get feedback on the plans? And then when you got the feedback, what did you do with that feedback? Right. Because if if you all have been applying for money directly to the EPA or to the state, have they been giving you to say, hey, you know, maybe you could change this project here. We can't give you this much money here, but we can give you that there. Right. Like what is the what is the conversation that is happening on the state and, and local level when it comes to crafting these plans. And so what the EPA administrator to me just simply says is like the plan that they had perhaps was not tangible. And two, we worked, you know, hard to perhaps get a plan together. But at the end of the day, constitutionally, the EPA can't make the state of Mississippi do anything. And so I think that's also what Representative Thompson perhaps was alluding to, too, as well. I was trying to get an interview with the he's been in public works for like forever and he just retired, Dr. Williams. And he's also said, like in in articles that I've read, you know, we've had plans on the shelf for 20 years. But what do those plans look like? Are they something that you know you're capable of doing? And then if not, how do you scale it down to make it? tangible. And I think too, like circling back to what Dr. Johnson said, the first, you know, black mayor, we have to do it methodically and it has to be in chunks. So I think it's politics, right? It's like very much people, I don't know if it's arrogancy. I don't know if it's, we don't again, understand, um, understand how politics work and that it's a negotiation art, but the people of Jackson are suffering because the elected officials are essentially having a pissing contest. And so we as citizens, all citizens, as global citizens, we need to keep making Jackson a point because Jackson can very well turn into other cities, right? It's not far, it's not a far reaching thing, right? It's, it can happen very instantaneously, instantaneously. So yeah, that's why I'm worried about it. <laughs> yeah, so we should worry about it because listen, if you, I was in Jackson this past weekend and listen, the roads are a mess and that, that probably has a whole lot to do with even being able to fix the sewage. So infrastructure dollars typically don't get 
to Jackson the way they mm-hmm. should. And I know that Congressman Thompson and the federal committee has sent a letter to the state of how do you plan to spend mm-hmm. all of this money? Which and, is you know, great, right? And that's great. Right. And that's and mm-hmm. that's where at the end of at the end of the day, voting it starts with voting, but where people now and the, and I believe the state legislature session starts in January in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Churches, mm-hmm. fraternal organizations, just a, a, a block of citizens every day, every day, asking every day about yes. these six things that yes. need to be fixed, and yes. which is probably, and I don't know what the mayor rightfully should. And mayors, all of mm-hmm. the, all of the mayors have been mm-hmm. asking for. From Johnson mm-hmm. to now the second Lumumba about staffing. It's probably a funding issue. I, I and I very much get it, but to get the citizens behind it to say, "Hey, let's get right. beyond the seventeen percent because if we want the staffing, we need to vote. We need to be at these meetings. We need to be because politicians respond to voting. They don't, like mm-hmm. they, 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 they don't want to come out of it. One young man, a football player <laughs> from Ole Miss." And I can't think his name said that when they were having problems about changing the state flag said, well, I don't think I can play here. Right. And all of a sudden you begin to start to move. Your voice really matters. So that's, that's very much a thing. And even, and I know this is a stretch too much. We're going to do another episode on this uh, (laughs) about Mississippi's misuse of their, what we know yeah. of welfare money and it's way bigger than Brett Favre or what have you, but that's a, a start of it. But there's, there's nothing that can happen here without voting in an active citizenship. And if you want a model there in Mississippi, go back to reconstruction. Those brothers and sisters were active. They were, mm-hmm. they were as active in the 1860s and 70s. Right. They were more active than this 17%. I'll tell you that. They were more active then than now. And silence is agreeance, right? Like your voice is your vote. And so if you don't vote, you're silent. And when you're silent, you agree because you don't, you didn't say anything, right? So. Okay. All right. So I think we've, we've, we've <laughs> so much more that, that I could get to. Uh, around this, but I think we've we've hit the salient points. And to our audience, I want to say we're going to come back to this. This is kind of uh, what I would call a setting the table because each one of these things, the, the voting, the water, the water infrastructure, environmental justice, climate change, what have you, is a thing. And we we need to be all over this, especially black folks. So there we go. So, Jamie Beasley, let me ask you this as we close. A couple of questions. What does it mean to live well? Living well means speaking up for yourself and always being vocal about what you want, about what you need, so you don't have to suffer in silence. Living well is living with the community and being heard. So, that's living well to me. All right. I like that. I like that. And so our show, the parlay being conversation in the all blue comes from all blues derived music, which is rock and roll, hip hop, uh, jazz. It's, it's everything that we know in this country. Now, 
you are an AT alien, but you got roots in, in New Orleans and Chicago through family and, and all of those things. So we could go a lot of different ways for, with this, but we're going to keep it to Atlanta. We're going to okay. keep it to Atlanta. <laughs> okay. All right. The most essential, and let's go with four. If someone came from from Mars and said, you know, I've been all over, I've been everywhere and I've been listening to music, but who are the four Atlanta artists, acts? It could be a band, it could be a single person, it could be a group, whatever. Who are the four musical acts that you would have to listen to to understand Atlanta? Gucci Mane. Gucci? Mm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Shawty Low. Shawty Low. Ooh. And old T.I., not this new man. Old T.I. Like, okay, so wait, 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 wait. We, so we got Gucci, <laughs> Outkast, Shawty Low, mm-hmm. and um, old, old T.I. Old T.I. You know what? Normally when we get to this... <laughs> I normally have some pushback in terms of, okay, you left out. I think you may have nailed this one. Now, I will say I didn't give you I didn't give you more than this. I, I think you would have to, if we're going to be adding on, you could add on TLC because I think they defined a, yes. a period of, of R&B in, in sort of Atlanta. That's certainly a wave. You know, certainly ludicrous and, and mm-hmm. uh, good mob. I mean, there's some there's, there's some more that we could add yeah. to it, but but I don't think we could do better than <laughs> if you're defining what Atlanta sounds like. Mm-hmm. Shawty Lowe, Gucci, Outkast, and Old Ti. So I'm gonna leave it there. Normally, I go over <laughs> like I'm gonna argue about it, but that's you really shut it down on that one. You shut it down. So hey, listen, we we appreciate having you and helping to set the table. Like I said, for our audience, we're going to revisit this. I want to encourage people to vote and to organize yourselves as citizens, all of the, because these are serious issues, right? Especially around water. I mean, you're talking about health and humanity. And I mentioned, you know, people dialysis, people, you know, needing to, make food for their family and their children, just needing to just take a bath and just to be clean. It is not a small thing. And it is also, while super complex, it is also as simple as you said about living well and using your voice, Mm -hmm. your voice and speaking up for yourself and advocating for yourself. And um, that's it. So, For everyone else, I appreciate you all listening and supporting us on the Parlay and All Blue. Vote and stay active. All right. And we'll catch you all next time. And thank you, Jamie. Thank you. We appreciate you here at the Parlay and All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay and All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite. 
follow us or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.